If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verse 32. So, my first couple years on island, I headed up once a month to uh, Northward Men's Prison. If you're familiar with that, out towards Bondtown. I would go there every Sunday night for their men's chapel. And in conversations with prisoners, a, a theme began to emerge amongst them. And I don't know if you knew this, but apparently every prisoner is innocent. <laughs> you know this? Every person in there is innocent. You may not have been aware of this, but it's true, near about 95%. It's just our legal system, clearly, it's, it's an issue. But uh, one gentleman uh, who, who really seemed to genuinely believe, as he said, that he was innocent, was in prison for the first time in his life. In fact, on the first arrest of his life. And having claimed to be innocent, I'd ask him, you know, what was it like then when the police first approached you? Like, what, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? And he said, you know, I was, I was dumbfounded. As they began to rant, you know, read me my rights, first I was dumbfounded. I went, to, I went to prison for a little bit, then they let me out on bail. The whole time before my trial, I was stressed, thinking through, man, what, what, what's going to happen? What do I need to do? Who do I need to defend me in court? He says, you know, the real horror was the courtroom. He said, you know, I, you just didn't know what was going to be said. What lies would be presented as truths and what from your past might be drudged up against you. Things that had nothing to do with what you were arrested for. So that, that was horrifying. I, said, I never remember he said, you know, it's in the courtroom where you finally have to submit your fate to judge and jury. It's all there. He said, I, I, I never fainted past it. Past, I, I never fainted in my life before. But when I stepped in that courtroom, I just immediately had to grab a seat. Because it was all right there before me. Imagine for you, if you were innocent, arrested, out on bail, and that first day you enter the courtroom knowing this is the place where my fate is going to be decided. Judge, jury. And yet you're innocent. That's where we find Jesus. In the final hours of his life, He talked about his fate through the cross every which way in that up to this point. In fact, he had just shown the disciples how to visually commemorate this death of his with bread and cup once he was gone. This is the time to submit to his fate. The real horror and him struggling with whether he would walk away. Let's read together Mark Chapter 14, starting in verse 32, we'll read through verse 52, and we're going to skip down to verses 66 through 72 as well. As they went to a place called Gethsemane, he said, Jesus did to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found Peter. He found James. He found John sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch just one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh, it is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came, to, came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to him, them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. Lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and Judas kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus said to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Skip down to verse 66. Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of uh, the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself at this fire, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I know, you know, neither know or understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man, he's one of them. But again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you're one of them. You're you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and he wept. This is God's word. I want to recap for us the horror Jesus felt as he walked into that garden. The horror he experienced so that we would never have to. We see a man with his hands, not heavenward as any true Jewish worshiper would have worshipped, but prostrate, falling to the ground a physical demonstration of only the most extreme moments in one's life. Luke reports in his gospel that Jesus actually, while praying, suffered a moment of the hemotrigosis. There we go, hemotrigosis. Which is a documented but very rare condition in which a person under extreme pressure actually sweats blood coming out of their capillaries and through their skin. The cup Jesus speaks about through blood, sweat, and tears was the cup of wrath prophesied in the Old Testament by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51, 
sorry, uh, Jeremiah 25, Isaiah, Isaiah 51, and finally in the book of Revelation. It was a judgment meant for all nations. God would pay each person back according to their deeds, the way they lived their life, the life he had given them. That was the cup Jesus would need to drink. Finally, a request to walk away from his fate. In that final hour, remove this cup from me. To which the father responds, no. I hope you don't miss the price being paid in this moment. Everything, everything depends on Jesus not walking away from his fate, from this courtroom. Our salvation is completely dependent on Jesus submitting himself in this moment to a cup that we deserved, meant for us. If we could take a time machine back to that moment, sort of H.G. Wells style, and this moment in the garden, have a window into it, we would absolutely be on the edge of our seats wondering, what will he do? And what will the Father say to this prayer he's given? The Father says no to Jesus. And Jesus submits so that one day the Father might say a greater yes to us. In a nutshell this morning, if you hear uh, nothing else, just this, to hear this message summarized, it is this. Through the cross of Jesus, every no from God is an exchange for his greater yes. Through the cross of Jesus, every no from God is an exchange for his greater yes. We get a greater yes through Jesus' actual submission to the Father's no because it works for us, our salvation. On the cross, the Father said no, his ultimate no to Jesus' prayer. He says no, judgment is deserved for all these nations. A righteous judgment is deserved for how people have lived their lives against me. And Jesus submits to it. So we don't ever have to. Also, Jesus' example of submission to the Father's no helps those of us who know Jesus and want to grow in him. When we receive no's from the Father to our prayers and to our heart's desires as well. So first, let's look at the greater yes for our salvation. Why are we at least fascinated and then maybe inspired by and then maybe in love with this man, Jesus, the Nazarene. I think one major reason is it's a human being who claims divinity. And yet he uses his powers to help the most struggling of human beings. Right? Jesus talks about moving mountains, but he himself never does so. He uses his power to love the struggling, to love the weak, to love the poor. Not the most enlightened he helps, like the God and the divinity of Buddha, but the least enlightened. Not the most moral, like the God of Islam, but the morally compromised, Jesus helps. The least healthy, the most oppressed, not those with the most potential, but those who are most stuck in their lives. That's what we love about Jesus, right? If he's really God, like he says he is, look who he helps. Such come to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, if you are willing, please help me. 
if you are able, would you get me out of this? One example of this we've seen before in Mark chapter 9, you might remember, a father comes to Jesus with his son. A son has been tormented since his childhood. And the father says, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have compassion and help us. And what's Jesus' response? If you can. So you can see Jesus smiling in that moment. Like, man, you don't know who you've come to. Someone who's not only able, but oh so willing. That's how Jesus spends his divinity. He wants to show us that the Father is not only powerful and mighty, but oh so willing to help. And he does. He always does. With those who ask. Notice in verse 26 how Jesus then approaches the Father in his moment of need. His moment where he's most stuck. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. A tender moment. It's the same plea as the man of Mark 9. But unlike the man of Mark 9, with unwavering faith. Not if you can, but I know you can, Father. I've known you forever. I trust you completely. And I love you. If anyone deserved to have his plea answered with with an unflinching yes, it was Jesus. It's the one who spent his life saying yes to those less deserving. But to his request, remove this cup from me, the Father says no. What is this? Why would the Father in this moment, and Jesus knows it's going to happen, why would the Father say no? has everything to do with us. Everything to do with us. And the possibility of you and I really knowing this God who created us. You know, even prior to some level of interest in Jesus, which I'm guessing is why you're here this morning, you have some level of interest in this Christ. Every person on earth has been prepackaged to recognize and reach out to a, a singular God. And it's great because the Bible talks about this. It bears testimony to this. It doesn't require being raised in a Christian home, growing up in church, or just being in the right place at the right time. It's every person. One, every person recognizes the unity in the created world around him. When you look at the world around you, biologically, ecologically, astronomically, you see unity, don't you? And you have to ask, what or who would cause such unity to life around me. And Romans 1 talks about this and says, every person is therefore responsible for thinking through, is there one being who created all this? Every person has a conscious, conscience built in to recognize a divine law. Romans 2 talks about this. Every person has a law within themselves to recognize there is a right and there is a wrong. There's a difference between loving people and hating people, helping people and harming people. Even if you don't have Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Ten Commandments, you never saw Moses and Charlton Heston, right? You still know. Thirdly, every person has a longing for life to continue after death. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about this. God has put eternity into every person. Every person recognizes, I'm not quite satisfied fully in this life. I wonder if there's a life to come. I want that. And these all fit together logically, don't they? 
we recognize outside ourselves a singular God makes the most sense out of the beauty of this world. And the beauty of this world suggests that there is a good God who has created it. And we want to be with that God forever in eternity. And that's where the law comes in. Because we have built into this, this knowledge that how we live out the law, how we respond to this inner rightness and wrongness will determine whether we go from this earth to that heaven, don't we? We're all kind of built, we all kind of are prepackaged thinking, if I'm just good enough, if I live out what I'm supposed to do, I might get from here to up there. I think that's right. I think that's good. It's something God has prepackaged within us. Here's the problem. The more we try to respond to that law, the more we try to keep doing what we know is right, for example, helping people like Jesus helped them, the more we recognize that we really tend to help ourselves. Right? Even in our best moments, where we start to help other people, what happens? It turns inward, doesn't it? And we say things like, Man, helping other people, it creates this really good feeling inside of you. You start to feel like you're a really good person. And then who are you doing it for, really? Yourself. On our own, the more we try to obey this law, this inner sense of right and wrong, the more we fail. The more we try to be like Jesus on our own and help like he helped, the more we fall short. This is amazing. I've been excited to share with you this, this story because it illustrates this so well. The first attempt to actually portray the person of Jesus on the big screen in film um, was a 1920s era, uh, during the 1920s era of silent films by uh, Cecil DeMille. If you remember, he actually is famous for creating the Ten Commandments. Great movie, Charlton Heston, Pharaoh, let my people go. You remember this, right? In the 1920s, he directed a movie called The King of Kings. And he cast a British-born actor named H.B. Warner to play the part of Jesus. Warner was kept on a short lease during the whole movie's filming. DeMille was concerned that any behavior by the lead actor that was inconsistent with the image of Jesus would result in negative publicity for the film. And you can understand why. A lot of people at least admired Jesus in the 1920s if they didn't love him. So he was very concerned that a Hollywood actor would say, hey, 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 I want to live life my own way. So DeMille enforced strict measures to ensure that Warner kept up this Jesus image off the set. It's so interesting. So, so Warner and co-star Dorothy Cumming, who played Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to actually sign agreements barring them five years from appearing in film roles that might compromise their holy image. They couldn't be in any other film that would appear that they would appear scandalous or a little bit unseemly. In addition to this, during filming, uh, Warner was driven to the set with his blinds drawn on his vehicle. Back in that day, you used to have blinds on your vehicles that would be drawn oftentimes to keep out the sun. And the director said, that has to happen so you don't accidentally see someone right in a skimpy dress which back there went a little past the ankles, right? Okay, and he also, he actually made, this is crazy, from the parking lot to the set, DeMille made Warner put a veil over his face, a black veil, so he wouldn't see anything 
from other sets, right? Like a woman in a, in a one-piece bathing suit, right? That might, you know, give him lustful thoughts. So he does, like this, this little box, a veil over his head. He separated Warner from the other cast members. He had, he had to eat alone every day. He couldn't play cards with people. He couldn't go to ball games. He couldn't ride in a convertible. He couldn't even go swimming because of what he might see there. He actually had to sign a contract saying he would keep to all of these things. The regimen and rules and regulations intended to make Warner more holy, guess what they did? They completely backfired. Instead of following them, the pressure, trying to be more like Jesus on his own strength, actually made Warner flee further from Jesus and from that image. Toward the end of production, Warner merely fled back into his addiction to alcohol. He relapsed, having been sober for years. And you might object, well, you know, alcoholism is a disease. You start, look, we are all born with a disease that the law, the good law, actually reveals. It's called sin. On the one hand, we sense the basic law of doing what's right and helping others get close to God gets us closer to heaven. Yet, through our failure along the way, we see something else in play, this big no in our hearts called sin, that the more we try to follow this law, And be a good person the more we fall short. And we all sort of know that there's this day in court out there. We want to avoid it. But like the prisoner with whom I spoke, we know we'll be horrified before the judge one day. What's going to be said? What's going to be brought up from my past if I don't do something about this? Mike Warner, you've tried to live like Jesus even if you don't even worship him. The disciples of Jesus, too, try to follow the law. They try to be like Jesus, but they fail because no one can live up to that kind of law. No one can live up to being exactly like Jesus. Jesus tells Peter he'll deny him. Within a couple hours at most, Peter fails, including flat-out denying he knows Jesus to a teenage girl. A teenage girl, not to the most influential of society, not to a governor, Not to a centurion who could arrest him. To a teenage girl who's just kind of asking. He not only says, I don't know Jesus. He invokes a curse upon himself in saying it. Which most commentators believe. He's basically invoking the name of God and swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. I swear by God's name that I don't know this God who I've confessed, Jesus. Ironic and sad. Within a couple hours, failure. Jesus tells the other disciples they're going to scatter in a span of 20 to 30 minutes. We read in verse 50, they all fled and scattered. In other words, Jesus is saying, just, just try to be like me for 20 or 30 minutes. Try to stick with me through the hard times. Flee. One dude's so desperate to, to see and follow Jesus, he turns up in his pajamas. But after seeing the hardship of Jesus within minutes, he leaves behind those PJs and goes away in his birthday suit, doesn't he? He's so eager to get away from Jesus in this moment. I'll just leave it all behind. Wow. There's an opportunity here in Gethsemane for three, just three, to be Jesus' prayer partner. And when he needs that support the most, 
they just hit the snooze button, right? Not one, not two, but three times. Preferring sleep to prayer. But Jesus says something here that's so important. It's not yet joyful. He doesn't trumpet it from a mountaintop. But it's still incredibly important for the disciples to hear before he goes to the cross. It's in verse 41. Look with me there, verse 41. He came the third time. This is the last time. He says to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? In other words, they failed. But listen to what he says. It is enough. It is enough. Throughout Mark, the disciples exhibit the glory of Jesus' salvation because they mostly misunderstand, they mostly fail, and they mostly flee. But they still showed up. At least once, they raised their hand and said, I'll follow you. And that's enough. That's enough. Jesus can say, it's enough. The disciples visually foreshadow what becomes clear in the apostolic teaching after Jesus dies, rises from the grave, and ascends into heaven. And that is, God's yes to us requires only a one-time, faint, imperfect, but sincere yes from us. God will say yes to you. The God of the universe, whom you've rebelled against, whom you've tried to follow, but you've fallen far short, he'll say yes to you. Even when just at one time, a faint, a struggling but sincere yes to him. That is good news, friends. In this moment, Jesus submitted to the Father's no. He was the perfect person to take upon himself our big no to the Father and the Father's no to our no. In other words, there's a clash. We say no to God. God says no to the way we're living. The only way it can be reconciled is by someone who's lived a yes to God his whole life and wants to say yes to us. Meaning in the middle is the cross of Christ. Here today, we, we, you probably agree the law is good and it's just, but you recognize like the man attempted to method act like Jesus, but falls back into addiction. And like the disciples, who just keep falling short. You don't need any longer to dread that day in court. Jesus raised his hand at Gethsemane. He said, I'll take it. I'll take the Father's no. So that he might one day say yes to you. Isn't that good news? If you've not believed that before, know that you have a God who loves you, who cares for you, a Father who knows you're going to flee, who knows you're going to fall asleep in prayer, Who knows, you might even run away naked from him. You might do something crazy to dishonor even his name. But you raised your hand. You said, I still want to be with you, Jesus. And that's enough. Consider, if you have trusted that, how that helps us in submission. Jesus' submission helps us to submit to God and grow. Read how Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What is Jesus doing here when he prays this? This was obviously very important. He prayed it three times, we're told, with the exact same words, Mark says. What is Jesus doing here? Essentially, he's praying a psalm. He's praying a psalm. 
If you're not familiar, the Psalms are God's group of inspired prayers that teach us how to relate to him in the midst of real-life circumstances. All right, we can read all this great stuff in the Bible about the past, but the Psalms help us kind of connect the anguish of our hearts, the circumstances of difficulty, how to deal with our own failure with God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Consider, first he acknowledges who God is, Abba Father. The most intimate Aramaic term possible for a son to acknowledge his dad, Abba Father. He then petitions God, remove this cup from me, please help me. Then lastly, he gladly submits, not my will, but yours be done. Every psalm of lament, which is the most common of all the psalms, It's a prayer of emotional and willful struggle with God where you're lamenting before him your situation and how he might help. Every psalm of lament is structured like this, acknowledging God, petitioning God, and finally submitting to God. He struggles, Jesus does submit, so he goes back again to pray, and then one more time, and then one more time. This is why David and the other psalmists wrote down these prayers to God. So that they could be repeated. So we can look over their shoulders at their prayer diary. And they can be repeated again and again. Until one is trusting whatever the Father wills is the greater yes for his or her life. Right? So you have disappointments in your life. You get no's to your prayer requests. What do you do about it? If for some of you it might be a spouse with whom you wish to share your life. It doesn't yet happen. It may be for you a promotion you feel you deserve, but instead God's no came by giving it to someone else. It might be a child whom you've raised in the Lord. You show them Christ through nightly reading the Bible with them, getting down and being patient with with them, showing forgiveness to them. And yet, your child is a class A brat, not only in your presence, but to the whole world. Why? But God, I don't understand. Why haven't you... Change them. A friend's ailment of your chronic pain hasn't received the yes you'd hope for from the great physician. You don't seem to have the kind of friendship you see others have. And you ask God for it, but it hasn't come. How do you move forward? How do you keep talking and walking with God in these moments? I suggest the Psalms be your guide. Even just pray Jesus' short psalm that we see here. Just pray, Abba, Father, I know all things are possible for you. Please take this pain away from me. Remove this cup from me. As you pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. And as you work through that, you'll watch that God begins to change your heart. And you'll start to see that his answer to prayer is coming through a changed life. You actually begin to change. And you begin to see, wow, God, your yes is even greater than what I wanted in my life. I know you wouldn't give me a stone when I asked for bread, but you gave me steak. You gave me something I couldn't even imagine in my life. So much better. Every prayed psalm, you'll notice the father only occasionally changes the circumstances of the psalmist, but he always changes his heart to ready him for the greater yes that the Father has in store. He might say no to you, but it's always because he has a greater yes. You know where the disciples show that they haven't yet submitted to the Father? 
That they, if they would have been there in prayer with Jesus, they would have learned this lesson, but they didn't. So they try, they try to work out the yes on their own. They try to prevent the bad no's in their life and work out the yeses on their own. Remember what they do here? They try to prevent the big no. Their hopeful destiny to be with Jesus, for him to keep living and teaching them. They watch the big no happen as he is betrayed, as handcuffs are put on him. And how do they respond? One of them takes out a sword, cuts off someone's ear. What were they trying to do? They were trying to work their own yes in their life. They were trying to change their own circumstances, to bring about their own victory. Notice how Jesus' response is different. He actually acknowledges the guilt of the people who have come to arrest him, the injustice of his arrest. What does he say? But let the scriptures be fulfilled because he has submitted to a father's greater yes. The father grows us, guys, through submission. That's what submission is. It's not just, oh, we both agree on this, so let's go ahead with it. It's struggling to trust someone so much that you agree that their yes is greater than yours. So sometimes they have to say no to your lesser request. They have to say no because they have something better in store from you, for you like any good father would. And that's what we have through the cross of Christ. That every no we get is because he is working for us a greater yes. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that through the cross, you presented, you were presented with this awful experience, so awful that we would never have to experience it for ourselves because of what you did. You never wanted us to experience it. So you said yes to the Father's no. You said, I'll take it. I'll take the punishment. So that we, so that we might have the Father say yes to us. We might know the Father forever. Jesus, we sense in our hearts that we're supposed to be good people. That there is this law that we're supposed to live up to. To be with a good God forever and eternity. But we also know from experience that we can't live up to it. In trying to help people like you help them, Jesus. And trying to love people like you love them. We fall short. And we fail. And we end up doing the very thing we don't want to do. But we're thankful that you took on the punishment we deserve for saying no to the Father. And that through your example of raising your hand and saying, I'll take it on, we can remember every time we're disappointed with the results of our life, with the circumstances we see, every time our desires aren't met in the way we want them to be met, we can look to Gethsemane and look to the cross and remember your initial no to Jesus resulted in a greater yes, and it will for us as well. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.